Good to see everyone today. Let's just open up with a word of prayer. Father, I just thank you for today. I thank you that we can come together as the body of Christ. We trust in your spirit to teach us now as we hear from your word, as we worship you in song. But I should just bless this time as I preach, Lord. Strengthen me and cause our ears to be open to your word, to receive the words of your son, Jesus, to learn from his life, to learn how we should be on mission and that we're going to receive rejection. But that's okay when we do it for the sake of the gospel. Amen. Let me start you off with this question. Was Jesus more accepted by man or rejected by man? Rejected. While people answer in Melrose, I'm loving that. You would think that if the Son of God came to the earth, if the Father loved the world so much as sent his Son, that we would welcome him with open arms. That every word he said, we would listen to and we would obey. That everything he did, we would want to copy it. That we would make him the object of our worship. That we have celebrations and feasts and worship him. But that was not the case for most, case for most men. It says the road is wide that leads to destruction and death and hell. That road is filled with people who are offended at Jesus. Who have rejected Jesus. Who have rejected the gospel. And the road is narrow that leads to life. That road is filled with people who by God's grace have accepted the gospel, who have repented and put their faith in Jesus. Jesus was on mission, and he received so much rejection. We've already learned that he's been rejected by his family, his own family. The Pharisees are making accusations that are ridiculous. They're rejecting him. They're plotting against him. He is coming back to his hometown. He's going to be rejected by his hometown. Jesus was rejected more than he was accepted. Jesus is rejected more than he is accepted. You will be rejected because they rejected Jesus. They will reject the gospel. Now, I'm not saying there won't be cases where people will receive the gospel, where they will be saved, where their lives will be transformed by the person and work of Jesus. Many of us in this room have experienced that. I have experienced that. But most likely, more than people accepting what you preach or expect, um, accepting your life or the church community you're part of, they will reject your message because they have rejected Jesus. I know that's not popular. It's not health and wealth, but it's truth. When I first got saved, I thought everyone I preached to was going to fall to their knees, reach to the skies, accept Jesus. I had been transformed. The Holy Spirit had awakened my heart to the truth of the gospel, to the person and work of Jesus. I'd put my faith in the Father. I'd never been so happy. Everyone know when you first got saved? You're so happy. You're telling everyone. You think there's going to be a revival in your family, among your friends, in your hometown. And slowly you realize, that person's rejected the gospel. That person's not listening to me. That person thinks I'm cuckoo. You slowly realize that you're being rejected for what you believe. I don't want you guys to be surprised at that. You should expect that. Mission and rejection go together like peanut butter and jelly. I learned that in seminary. If you're going to be on mission, you're going to be rejected. 
A servant is not above his master. If they hated Jesus, they'll hate you. Now, today in our text, Jesus is going to return to his hometown. You think if the hometown boy is coming home, there's going to be a sign up that says the pride of Nazareth, right? Because if Mickey Ward's the pride of Lowell, Jesus has got to be the pride of Nazareth. I mean, boxer, son of God, boxer, son of God, boxer, son of God. You think people are going to be dancing in the streets. The mayor's going to be out there to give them the key to the city. Everyone's going to be joyful. There's going to be a party. No. They took offense at him. He came home to rejection from his own town, from his own people. He's on mission, so he's going to be rejected. Let's read Mark 6, verse 1 together. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Through this whole gospel, we have seen Jesus on mission. He's a man of action. He's casting out demons. He's preaching the gospel. He's seeing miracles. He's being rejected. Many people are coming to the kingdom of God. He's on mission. He's just healed Jairus' daughter. He continues mission, and he is coming home to the town of Nazareth. Nazareth is not where he was born, but it's where he was grew up, where he grew up. It's where he learned to train. It's where he was educated, probably at home. He knew these people. At the time of Jesus, um, Nazareth was probably a town of two to 500 people. So it's a small town. Everyone knows in small towns, everyone knows everyone. Everyone knows everything about everyone. Everyone talks about everyone and everything. They knew Jesus, he was coming home. It was not high on the societal totem pole. People would make statements like, what good can come out of Nazareth? It was like 1,300 um, feet above sea level. It wasn't that accessible. It was a little bit isolated. They get about 25 inches of rain a year. They got good harvest. It was a pretty decent town, but it was small. It was isolated. It was an intimate town where everyone knew everything. So Jesus is coming home to this town. I want us to take a note on, to, on this too. Jesus always kept his disciples with him. This was his leadership style. It was very relational. They were with Jesus daily. They saw how he responded to situations. They saw how he spoke. They saw how he prayed. They saw how he preached. So they were learning. They were observing how they were going to do uh, ministry, how they should respond, how they should pre the go- preach the gospel and share the gospel with everything they do. So they're going to learn today that mission and rejection go hand in hand. They've already seen Jesus rejected by his family. So they're thinking maybe the hometown's going to receive him. That is not the case. Let's read verses 2 and 3 together. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How were such mighty works done by his hands? Is, this, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. People never questioned if Jesus taught well or spoke with authority, or had wisdom, or did miracles. That was never questioned. What was questioned was where he got the power to do those things. Most likely they are entertaining the same thought back in chapter 3 that he got his power from Satan. Because if he doesn't get it from God, there's only one other place to get it. And they're blown away because this common man who hasn't traveled the world, hasn't gone to a university, 
been educated not at seminary, but through manual labor, how can this man be an authority over us? How does he have this wisdom? And they take offense at him. The totally wrong response, where they should be rejoicing that the hometown boy, the son of God, comes from their town? I mean, that's something to get a t-shirt about. Instead, they are rejecting him. They take offense at him. And they start with his job. They start with his trade. Is this not a carpenter? Okay, I'm blown away that all the jobs in the world, God's only son comes, fully God, fully man. He could have picked another job. I'm sure there were desk jobs, and I'm not going to knock desk jobs because 95% of some of my road are desk jobs. If I find a blue-collar brother, I'm asking him to come over to my house and help me build something. He could have had a desk job, but he chose to work with his hands. This means he sweated, he bled, he was tired, had a sore back. He was building, deck, building decks and chairs and tables and houses. He was working hard. The humility of Jesus blows me away. He doesn't show up having people kiss his ring. He shows up and he's working with his hands. Now, I was building a deck the other day with my buddy Dave Simonton. I'm an electrical contractor. I'm not a carpenter. So it's fun at first, right? You throw that belt on. You break the hammer out of the garage, walking around the sun shining. You're cutting stuff. You got the circ saw all. I'm looking like a man. You know what I mean? You got everything going. Well, two hours into that, you're like, this ain't fun no more, bro. Is it lunchtime yet? And I said to Dave, man, of all the jobs for Jesus to pick, and he comes and he's a carpenter? If I was the son of God, man, I would not be picking that job, man. I'd do something else. But Jesus, the humility that he did that. And the craftsmanship must have been unbelievable. I mean, come on now. That table must have been perfectly level, man. The referrals that Jesus must have got. I see people boasting work. That cabinet, man, there's probably still a house in Nazareth that's standing today that Jesus built. But what they were saying was, is this not a common worker like one of us? Is he not like one of us? So they start with his trade, then they go to his family. We know his pedigree. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. Is this not the son of Mary? Now, that was an insult back in the day. That's like me calling Matt the son of Margaret and not the son of Glenn, D. Cruz. That's an insult. I knew Glenn would like that. Old school Pentecostal. I knew he'd get some kind of response. But that was an insult to call him the son of Mary. Most likely, it's a small town. There's still rumors of Jesus being illegitimate going around the town. I mean, born of a virgin, come on. The hometown boy. So they're already offended, insulting him, disrespecting him. They know his family. They know where he came from. And they're saying, there's no way this man is the Messiah. There's no way this man can even be a rabbi and have authority over us. So familiarity becomes a veneer for their pride and their envy and their sinful rejection of the Christ. Let's read verse 4 together. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus gets proverbial truth here. It's right 98% of the time. He's both speaking about the Old Testament prophets. If you read about the Old Testament saints, 
they weren't all welcomed. Actually, most of them were not welcomed with open arms. They were rejected. They lived tough lives because they came to God's covenant people with a word from God, and they were rejected. And he's both saying that he is going to be rejected. He's speaking this in anticipation of his, the ultimate rejection he would receive from Israel. Our Savior was rejected and murdered on a cross. And it was even tougher for his hometown to believe that he was the Messiah because of familiarity. And I want to read you this quote from Matthew Henry because it was very helpful when I was studying. It says, Ordinarily it holds good that ministers are seldom so successful in their own country as among strangers. Familiarity in younger years breeds a contempt. The advancement of the one who was inferior begets envy. And men will hardly set those among them, the guides of their souls, whose fathers they were ready to set with the dogs of their flocks. It was tough for the town to say, this common man is now an authority over us. They rejected Jesus. And their unbelief was astounding. It was so astounding that it limited a dynamic expression of the miraculous in their midst. So let's read verse 5 together, because this is unbelievable. And he could not do mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So I don't want you to hear that Jesus is limited in this verse, because that's not what um, Mark is trying to say in this gospel. Jesus can heal anyone, anytime, any place. He's sovereign. But their unbelief was so astounded that they did not receive the grace or receive a dynamic expression of the miraculous in their midst. Imagine the resistance and the unbelief. In other towns, you see stuff going on. Jesus is healing people. He just healed Jairus' daughter. That was amazing. He's casting out demons, but not in his hometown because of the unbelief. Let's read verse 6, because this is what I want you to see Jesus' response to their unbelief here. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went, up, went about among the villages teaching. I marvel at the fact that Jesus marveled in this passage. It's the only time the verb is used in the whole gospel of Mark. How do you catch the Son of God who's been here from the beginning? He's already been rejected. He's already been accused. He's already cast out demons. He's already healed. The Pharisees are rejecting him. He's received all that. How do you catch him off guard? He's the omniscient one. Their unbelief was that unbelievable to him that it caught Jesus off guard. You've got to be really sinning to catch Jesus off guard. He's seen a lot. Now, this is the only town in the history of the world that will have Jesus grow up in it. That's a lot of grace. I want the Son of God to grow up in my hometown. I want those boasting rights. But they're not responding rightly. See how sin can blind your eyes and take something that's such a gift and turn it into a curse? They should have been rejoicing in this. They should have been worshiping God because the Messiah came to their town, their lowly town. But instead, they're taking offense and rejecting the Messiah himself, the hometown boy. Does this stop Jesus from mission? No. Jesus knows rejection is coming. He continues to be on mission, and he's preaching from town to town, 
whether he's rejected or not. And this is what I want you guys to understand. If you are going to be on mission, you are going to be rejected. If they rejected your Savior, if they hate Jesus, they will hate you. I know that's tough to say in Western culture. We want everyone to like us. We want everyone to like our church, everyone to love our programs, everyone to like our website, everyone to like the way our pastor preaches nice and timid with a little robe on. We, we don't want to offend anybody. News, good news, you are going to be rejected because you believe in Christ and because he has chose you to be one of his. Jesus preaches that we should serve. This world teaches that you should take. Jesus preaches that he's the only one to be worshipped, that we should worship the triune God. The world teaches that we should worship ourselves, idols, and the pleasures of this earth. Why would they receive you with open arms? Of course, there will be cases, and we have seen it and will continue to see it, when God saves souls. But you can't judge if you're on mission whether souls are saved or not. Because it's our job to preach the gospel, to give the effective calling. It's Jesus' job to save souls. You can judge if you're on mission if you have been rejected. So I'll give you a, good, a few good indicators that you're on mission. If your faith has affected a relationship in your family the relational dynamics, you're on mission. If a friend who you used to hang out with before you got saved does not return your calls as much or doesn't like, like to hang out with you as much because he doesn't want to hear all that Jesus talk or that church talk, you're on mission. If someone of your friends or your family members or those you are familiar with has sat you down and said, you're taking this thing way too serious, you should go to church on holidays. That's how you do it. The word of God is not the word of God. It is written by man. They say you should back up off of this thing and stop going so hard after Jesus. That's a good indicator that you're on mission and you're in good company because they rejected your master, your king, your lord, and your savior. Count it joy. Rejoice over this that you get to partake in the sufferings of Jesus and to know him through your sufferings. A life without a rejection is, is a life without following Christ. It's also very important how we preach the gospel, respond to the gospel. We do not want to respond like the people of Nazareth. Jesus is familiar around here, guys. In our culture, Jesus is familiar. People talk about him. They celebrate Christmas. They've heard his name. But very few people know Jesus and are not offended by him when you preach the gospel. We do not want to respond and reject Jesus and be offended at him like the people of Nazareth. The right way to respond is to rejoice that the Son of God has come to earth to save us, to bring glory to the Father. This is unbelievable. God did not have to do this. Do you guys understand that? I know many of us have been in church our whole lives, have grown up with family. God did not have to send his son. He did not have to give us something to rejoice about. He did not have to put Jesus among him. He did not have to give his son to be a carpenter and sweat and bleed and suffer and be rejected. We can't take that for granted. We must rejoice in that. We must glorify God. We must worship him. We must be rejected for his name. If you're someone today who's been offended by Jesus and you're familiar with Jesus, I urge you today to repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ. 
in the person and work of Christ. He lived the perfect life. He died the perfect death. And he rose again so that you could be made whole and receive his righteousness. God has been among us. He is alive. Do not allow familiarity to breed contempt in your life. I've been blessed because 98% of the time the people are familiar with you and um, know you are not going to be in a church you're you're pastoring because they've seen your sins. They know your imperfections. They know your failures. It's very tough to put someone as a spiritual guide over your soul and you've seen them grow up and and you're familiar with them. I just want to praise my in-laws for a second. I'm not doing this for any brownie points. I'm doing it because it's truth. They could have responded totally different to their son-in-law being a pastor. They've seen me live, man. I'm a sinner. But instead, they've humbly responded to the grace of God in my life and been part, not only part of the church, they've allowed me to be in spiritual authority in their life. It's not a game to them. My father-in-law came over yesterday, and we sat down, and we, we talked theologically. And Joe Vex's big question is why? Is there so much suffering? I think that's a lot of our big questions. So we sat down and we talked through that. And I really got to speak in his life. He got to speak into my life. I gave him a book that he'll never read, but it seemed good. (laughs) And Nancy, so many times, she asked me to pray with her. She shares her struggles with me. And I'm allowed to be a spiritual guide and a pastor in their life. You know how much life that brings to the body of Christ? How much life it's brought to my family and my children. I want to see that happen a thousand times in our churches. That we would see humble response to the grace of God. Now, there might be a young man in our church that will one day grow up and lead one of our churches. He might not come from the family you think he's supposed to come from. He might not come from the town you think that he's supposed to come from. But I pray that we respond by rejoicing that God has called men and equipped men to serve the church, that we don't envy others. And let me tell you this. It doesn't mean that God loves you any less if a man's called to being a spiritual authority. It means that that man's been chosen to suffer more. He's more accountable before God. Doesn't mean that God loves you any less. That, that's a lie of a competitive world. Let's rejoice when God raises young men up, no matter where they come from, no matter what their education is, no matter what family they come from. Let's pray that God sends more laborers to preach the gospel. And for our young boys and our young girls, I don't know how many are in here, but if you're growing up in a church where your family worships Jesus, and loves Jesus, God has poured much grace out on your life. To have parents who pray with you, to have parents who read stories of Jesus to you, read the Bible to you, that's great grace in your life. I know sometimes you're rejected because we do things a little different from the world, and that's good. We resist the lust of the world, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, and the gain of earthly possessions. But you have been given much grace. Your parents are imperfect. 
All of us are. But they're preaching about a perfect Savior and a perfect Jesus who has loved you. I pray that you never reject Jesus when you leave your home, when you go off on your own, but you always accept Jesus. You always rejoice in him, and you always put your faith in the gospel because it is true. He is the one true and living son of God who died for our sins. And all who believe in him will be saved and will have eternal life. God is that loving. God is love. So Seven Mile Road, we are on mission. We're going to continue to be on mission. Let us not be surprised when rejection comes. But let's rejoice that we can be rejected for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of our Savior. And let's rejoice and worship God today that he was willing to be rejected so that we could find life and life more abundantly so every one of our filthy sins could be forgiven. And that we've been given everything if we have God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you sent your son among us. I'm amazed and I marvel at that. That you're that loving, that you would allow your son to be rejected and suffer for our sake and for your glory. Help us to be willing to be rejected for your sake, Lord, and for the sake of others that they might find the gospel. Let Seven Mile Road be a place where we rejoice in rejection and we rejoice in salvation. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. Amen.